Hello and welcome to the Wabi Sabi series podcast, unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, a corporate exec turned author who has recently written a series of books about topics we don't often talk about. Things like death, grief, not having kids, and the unexplained power doctors often wield over us. Apparently, some of my books have made some people feel a little uncomfortable, but I felt that I wanted to have far more conversations around weird, wonderful, and sometimes taboo topics. So I reached out to some interesting people and asked them just one question. If there is one topic that you'd love society to talk more about, what would it be and why? And what they've shared with me has been amazing. So let's dive in and see where the conversation takes us. The paths that we can walk down to get to the financial future we want to, there's not one or two or three paths. There's thousands and thousands of paths. Melissa Brown is an ex-accountant, ex-financial advisor and ex-working till she drops. Nowadays, she's a best-selling author, financial educator, business strategist and mentor, and entrepreneur who is passionate about helping women particularly also live a life by design, not default. You may be familiar with her global best-selling book, Unfuck Your Finances, her most recent book, Budgets Don't Work, or her popular eight-week course, My Financial Auditing Plan. Mel is a sought-after speaker and financial commentator, and I've had the pleasure of seeing her in action a few times myself. She's a dynamo and puts such a fun and interesting spin on all things money-related. Every time I hear from her, I learn something new. This is a fabulous conversation to have because many people are very uncomfortable talking about money. Mel Brown, it is fabulous to have you here today. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's kick straight in. There's uh, lots to talk about in your world, which is a space that fascinates me to no end. So if there's one thing that you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? It would be the psychology of money. So I think too many people are running a path where it's by default and they think this is what I should be doing with money. And it's like a gritted teeth, fingertip clenched, I'll just need to adult and do it. Whereas my belief is if we actually understand why we're behaving the way we are with money and why we think the way we are with money and even potentially why we're sabotaging with money, then we can actually choose to do something different and either rewrite those money stories we're carrying or leaning into our money, the strengths of our money type, which is all things that we'll chat about (laughs) Fantastic topic. So the psychology of money. And I mean, there's so much in that to unpack, I guess. So in terms of where to start, I mean, you've written several books in this sort of space. So you're such a bloody expert and you speak, I've seen you speak so much. It's great. I had so many, I've got so many questions. The thing I'm really interested about is about money types and understanding your money story and stuff. So over to you. So I believe when it comes to money, there's that twin aspects of nature and nurture. So if we look at nurture first. As a person, I grew up with stories from my childhood or that society or my culture has uh, taught me. And it doesn't necessarily mean they're truths, but they're things that I inherently believe about money. I believe about myself. And when it comes to money, we're also carrying these same money stories or myths, and we believe them as absolute truths because we haven't been taught to question them and to ask the question, are they right for us? Um, And my question is, 
A, to dig them out, to figure out what money stories and even money myths we believe. And then just as importantly, ask the question, is that serving me or sabotaging me? And when I think money stories, uh, probably the easiest way to illustrate them is the uh, piggy bank. So, Michelle, why do you believe or why do you think we use a pig for savings? <laughs> I've never thought about it. Wow. Um, like the greedy pig. Is that it? You don't think about it. You just accept that a pig equals savings. So the story of the piggy bank so is <laughs> I know. taking me back to my little tiny ceramic pig that I had when I was like five. Wow. Which I've got one in the background behind me. You oh, know, yeah, if, I, it is. if someone has a baby, I'll give them a little, uh, a little platinum or a whatever pig. But it's actually a mistake. So back in the 15th, 16th century, a trader went to Europe and the clay that they made the pots that they stored coins in was P-Y-G-G and it was pronounced pug at the time but eventually people started to call them pig and so he loved them. He sent a note or whatever it was back in the day, a telegram back to his warehouse and said we need to make heaps of these pig banks, he called them, P-Y-G-G and the warehouse looked at that and went oh pig banks, sure. So they made a whole bunch of containers in the shape of a pig, thinking that's what he was talking about. And he got back to his warehouse and went, oh, what on earth have you done? Well, we're just going to have to flog them and see what happens. They were an immediate hit. And that is how the modern day piggy bank, so from an accident, an absolute mistake based on the name, yet that's how so many of our stories are. They're truths that we just don't even think to challenge. We don't even think to question why we believe this about money. Uh, another one, a very Australian one, is that you should own your own home or that housing will always go up in value. You know, it will double every seven years. Yet that's, again, that's another one that it may be right for some of us, but it absolutely should not be true for all of us. And certainly the, the money story that you're not financially adulting until you own your own home is one that a lot of people carry, yet it may not be right for them. And actually, financially, it could hold them back if they're spending everything on that dream home they think they should have and not leaving enough to invest in other assets Yeah, I think instead. I'd like to dig a bit more on that one because it's um – Something, I guess, that uh, younger generations are going to have a tough time. I mean, you know, to be able to buy on the ladder, you know, I live in Sydney, so you live in the Blue Mountains, but like in terms of, you know, regional areas where we're both sort of in slightly regional areas and the explosion that's gone on, I think even in where I live, it's gone up like 38% property has in the last year, which who would have thought that through a, you know, pandemic. So the Australian dream is becoming very unattainable for many. But I remember reading an article many years ago around, um, you know, a preeminent Australian financial advisor, you know, in the media sort of talking about actually the Australian dream is not right and you should actually you know he did the numbers and I read this article and thought wow it's the first time that had ever been challenged because I've always invested in property that was always my thing as a kid that's how I've made my money it's all been on property and um and it was a really good thing to sort of have that challenged but I'm curious on your view on that on like so if you don't you know are you better off to have a nicer lifestyle and live in an apartment in the city that you want to be in or a house you can afford versus something that you can't afford to buy and then where else should you you put your money? Yeah. Oh gosh, such great questions. And I feel like that's just a whole 
conversation there. Uh, so I absolutely believe that owning your own home is still right for some people, but it is not right for everyone. And that's when where that holds uh, the psychology of money and understanding why you're doing what you're doing, but also the fact that finances are personal. What works for you is not necessarily what works for me because it depends what sort of life you want to design. Uh, for some people, owning their own home will be incredibly important, but it may not be able to be in the suburb that they want. Whereas for other people, if I want to chase a job around the world or if I don't know when I'm where I'm going to end up, then owning my own home may not be right for me. And instead, it may be that I still invest in property. It's just not my own home. Uh, and that's actually called rent vesting, where I choose to rent um, and potentially, certainly there are some areas where it's cheaper to rent than to own your own home, but then to buy in another suburb is instead that perhaps you would never, ever live in, but you're using that for either rental growth or um, capital growth. But definitely it's something that I think we need to challenge. And it, in the book, Budgets Don't Work, I talk about the fact that if we look at house prices, how they've gone up. In 25 years, the average house price will be $6.5 million in Sydney. Yet wages aren't increasing at that same rate. We really haven't seen wages lift in the last 10 years. So it's going to be unsustainable. We've seen it overseas. We're in France or Europe. It's very common not to because their houses, it's just unattainable. Whereas I think that's going to happen here ultimately. They're just It's just simply going to get to that point. When you were talking then, I was thinking back to, you know, thinking about money stories and how my mother used to mm. always say, you know, renting is dead money. Mm. Like, you know, that whole uh-huh. element. And that's where this article really it's challenged that. a great that. example of a yeah. money story. Yeah. If you have a topic burning inside you that you'd love to talk more about and have a conversation with me, I'd love to hear from you. So drop me a line at hello at wabisabiseries.com. Let's head back to the chat. We've got the money story element, but then also, as you say, the nature nurture, and then you talk about money types. So I'm curious about money types. What, what, is, what does that mean? Nurture is your money as story, whereas nature is your money type. And if I, again, if I liken that to a personality trait, I am an introvert. I can be situationally extroverted, but I once heard it described as with coins. You know, I wake up in the morning with five coins. Every time I have an interaction with someone, I lose a coin, get to the end of the day and I'm depleted. And I just need some mail time to to refresh. Whereas an extrovert will wake up with no coins and they receive a coin every time they have an interaction can't think of anything worse. So they're full and bouncy by the end of the day. It's the same with our finances. So I believe there are four different money types. The worker whose whole ethos is the harder I work is that's how I will make my money. It's all about personal exertion. Uh, For a worker, part of their frustration is that they look around at other money types and they think I'm working harder than them, but I don't have as much to show for it. So that can be real frustration. And if you live with a worker, you may be really frustrated by their their seeming putting work above absolutely everything else, including home. The next one is creator. So they're the most um, idealistic money type. So words like manifesting and mantras and abundance are all the words that they're going to feel really comfortable with. 
And their whole thing is they hate budgets. They hate deprivation. But for them, it's about challenging them and saying, okay, yes, we want to be sensible with our finances, but let's put a mantra around that so that you really feel comfortable with it. And let's put financial challenges with rewards and gamify it so that you look to find more cash rather than deprive you because you're just not going to be motivated by deprivation. A third is the discerner of which I am. So that's the most cynical of the money types. Um, We are the thought leaders. Uh, We make money by our smarts. So book smarts or street smarts. Our biggest weakness is paralysis by analysis. We will overthink and just be unable to act. Or if everyone else is doing it, we don't want to. So there could be good things we should be doing, but we're not going to do it if just because everyone else is doing it. Uh, You know, I love Harry Potter, but I would not read the books or watch a single movie because I'm like, well, how good can it be? Everyone's found it. (laughs) It's just ridiculous. But we apply that to our money as well. But we're amazing at strategy so we can see around corners. And if we use that to our financial advantage, we're great. And the last is relators, the most empathetic of the money types. They're often the carers. Um, There might be nurses or in those caring industries, social sciences. Uh, My husband is part uh, relator and part worker. And for them, they're most at risk of rescuing others financially. You almost see it as selfish to put yourself first financially when there are so many people in the world and so many things that you should be spending your money on. So for you, it's about making the goal emotional and making the account, making the accountability social. That's how you'll get excited. You're most at risk of sexually transmitted debt and the most at risk of uh, wanting to help others. So it's about putting your own oxygen mask on, your financial oxygen mask, so that you can help others. Um, sexually transmitted debt is where you're, I'm incurred debt from being in a relationship. So it might it. be. I've never heard that. Oh, Fabulous. It's one of my favorite terms. Again, in Unfuck Your Finances, I have a whole chapter on it because I think it's such an important topic. It might be a credit card. It might be rent. It might actually be gambling debt. It might be that we've, I've come into a relationship. I've never talked about money. My partner hasn't done his taxes for 10 years. Suddenly I have a debt as a result, uh, but it's a debt that you receive as a result of being in a relationship. Oh, what a great way to describe it though. But um, yeah, I've not heard that. Um, and the other one, oh God, there's so, so many things in there, Mel. That's, I've never heard those descriptors. And most of us are hybrids as well. We're not just one, that we have strengths and weaknesses in them. And often when we're stressed, we'll lean into one rather than the other. Yeah, that makes sense as well. So, so the four types, so how do I find out what type I am? Because now I'm so intrigued. Is it um, in your books? And also you have a course online that we'll talk to a bit about as well, but you've written four books. Books, haven't you? <laughs> Four books, I know. So the first was More Money for Shoes back in the day, uh, then Fabulous But Broke, uh, the coffee table book, where it's all beautiful and illustrated, where it's financial uh, fairy tales. Unfuck Your Finances is the really a way of, of reading about money going, oh my God, of course that makes sense. And then the latest is Budgets Don't Work, which is where the quizzes and the money types and all the research and sexy science. Amazing. Okay. And then people can do a course with you as well, right? So it's an eight-week course on my financial adulting plan. I really like the name of that. (laughs) Let's grow up. (laughs) Exactly. And it's everything from, uh, so we do two weeks on financial awareness, which is your money story, your money type. Really dig into that. Two weeks on actually creating a strategic financial plan. So where are you now? Where do you want to go? Where's the gap? 
And what are we going to do about that? Three weeks on investing. So a week on shares where I actually open up my share portfolio because I think that we don't, we're fearful of shares because we don't see it. So it's just demystifying it by saying, hey, this is how you buy and sell a share. This is how you buy and sell an exchange traded fund. Like just demystify it. A week on property, a week on business, because business and side hustles can be a great investment. Um, And seven streams of income, which is what most millionaires have. So it's just realizing that don't just buy a house and then sit back and pay off your mortgage. That actually can be financially disastrous. Let's develop multiple streams of income. And then the final week is money habits for money types. Because the habit that works for you, Michelle, might be absolutely, I might feel like it's an itchy jacket and it just is wrong. Whereas for me, hacks work beautifully. You know, one of my favorite um, hacks for a discerner money type is every time I spend a dollar on a want. So for me, that's shoes and clothes. I'm a dink. I have the propensity to spend way too much money on that. And I want to be environmentally conscious. I want to be careful about as a spender. So for every dollar I spend on clothes and shoes, I have to spend a dollar in the share market. So it's a beautiful way to make me say, can I afford to spend twice as much? But also it's enjoying today and also still looking after future. Great. I love that. What a, what a, such a simple thing, Mel, like as a little tool to kind of check yourself as well. So something you just said then around the seven streams of income for most what millionaires or whatever. So I've never heard that before. So what are the, what's the premise around that? I mean, obviously it sounds obvious, but. The research suggests that most millionaires have have seven streams of income. So most people will have their home, and their retirement, so their superannuation, and that's it. Other people might have an investment property, but again, that's it. So it's asking the question, how can I develop multiple streams of income so that I'm not relying on that one thing? And when COVID hit, most people had one stream of income. It might have been a wage. It might have been a business. That income was so at risk when COVID hit. Whereas if we have multiple streams of income, half of them might be at risk, but then half of them might be very comfortable and and be able to be sustained. So personally, to explain it, I have, uh, I've got multiple businesses. So I receive a trust distribution and consulting fees from one. I receive dividends and a wage from another. I also have a commercial rental property. So I receive rent from that. I have an apartment in the city that I have the ability to rent out. So that can be another form of rent. I have shares. So I receive capital growth from that. I also receive dividends from my shares. Plus I have my super. Um, So that's nine there. But it's so simple actually to understand how that works. Yeah, that's great. It's realizing that you don't need to go and buy an investment property to, to, and that's what we default to in Australia. It might be, I'm going to start investing in shares. I'm going to start a side hustle. There are so many other ways that I can create these multiple streams of income. A lot to think about there, actually, and uh, some processes for me to go through even personally. I love it. There was another thing that sort of came up there about manifesting when you talked about the types. So I think it was the creator element about manifesting and stuff. And I read an article that you wrote recently around the... The rise of the influences. Can you talk to me about that? Because it's, you know, around this whole manifesting money element, which is just the most ludicrous thing I've ever heard. You are so not a creator money type. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's elements actually 
actually, that's interesting that maybe I am. I, I, I'll be intrigued to do, I'm going to do the quiz and I'm going to come back to you and tell you about that because I'm so intrigued. I think I'm definitely a mold. You know, I do believe in, you know, energy and all those sort of elements, but that people are saying around, you know, just tap here and do this and not doing the work. That's the most frustrating thing I've ever heard in my life. So, I mean, and that's me not being in the industry. So tell me about that. Yeah. So my absolute frustration with Finfluencers is, yes, there are some incredible people online that have both the investing knowledge because they've done it and the financial chops because they've got the theory who are giving general advice online, such as myself and a whole host of others. But there are also a bunch of people that have got no expertise whatsoever that are just are saying, sign up to my course that might be $2,000 or $3,000 US and I'm going to just help you manifest your way to success. And if that's all you're doing, it's not enough. And I think too many people are doing that going, I've now taken the steps I need to be financially well off. Whereas sure, that might be one part of it, but you've got to add in the action. We've got to figure out where we want to go. We've got to understand investing. We've got to start setting up multiple income streams. It's not just about, I'm going to manifest some more money next month. Oh, look, it happened. You know, we've got to get more strategic than that. <laughs> and it also is, you know, in on TikTok, there is a hashtag, so stock talk, where it's had something like a billion views, where people are giving stock tips on TikTok and people are listening and then investing as a result, which for me is so dangerous. I'd love to see the stats on that though, you know, like just to see, but maybe people, if they're losing, you know, a ton of money, they're not going to, they're not going to share that, are they? No. And because of the whole GameStop with Reddit, where they jumped in, some of people made, you know, a thousand percent or whatever, there is this appetite for risk financially and to gain those insights online. And I think it can be inherently dangerous, but it's also not just online. Um, Fairfax wrote an article on crypto and they uh, interviewed a Cronulla teenager who was really interested in investing in crypto and was talking about his mates and they'd, you know, they're all investing in crypto, which I love, love that teenagers are doing that. But then they asked for him and they published his top five tips for investing in crypto. Like, what are we going to a teenager who has been doing it for a year for his top five tips? Like, it's just madness to me. So I think that's where we've got to be really careful who we're following for advice and where we're getting our advice from. And I think back to your first point where you say about, you know, money is very individual and around, you know, the way you invest is very different to the way I invest and, you know, we've come from very different, you know, money stories, the backgrounds that we've come from. And I think that's a really interesting point as well, where people, you know, have this view that I've come from nothing and potentially, well, I'm never going to be a millionaire because I didn't come from that background or versus, you know, I've come from a lot of money and I'm going to be safe all my life. And I've seen the complete opposites throughout my whole entire life. And I'm interested about your view on you know, investing on things and about, you know, gut feel on elements. So when we're talking about manifesting and all those kind of points or, you know, taking advice from a from a teenager that's maybe knows more about cryptocurrency than you know, but, you know, where, where do you sit with like actually your, you know, analyzing your gut feel on something, whether you're going to put, you know, significant amount of money on it? I think we need to trust our gut. I think we don't trust our gut enough. And certainly uh, for me, if I've 
especially in the last 12 months with COVID, I've acted against my gut with investments. And every time I do, I just think, what on earth are you doing? And I, I, I always sit back and go, why did I think my gut was telling me, like, why didn't I trust my gut? And often it's because of fear that I'll act against it. Or just, I have a money story around not being enough. And I'll go, oh, you know, I don't know that I can be trusted. So therefore I won't listen to my gut. And almost always the gut was right. But it was right because I have a data-based gut. So that simply means that I rely on the evidence from me having invested for a decade now, from having done my research, from having done my homework, from being a financial advisor, from working with hundreds of female clients, from listening to podcasts and reading the books and investing myself, I've developed a really strong data-based gut where the more I listen to that, I actually find the better I am as an investor, but it is very different to just, especially if we're not used to talking about money, if we don't understand investing, to then just go on gut feel can actually be dangerous because we've got nothing behind it. I love that premise. I've not heard about database gut before. That's a fabulous way to look at it. Karen James, who was the ex-Women in Focus founder, she's the one that first told me about it and it just resonated with me. I love it. So I talk about that premise a lot about it, doing your research, doing your homework, and then developing that database gut. I love it. And um, such a beautiful way to pull this to an end because I knew, Mel, we would have so much to talk about <laughs> that we I could know. be here for days. So that's all right. We'll, we'll get you back and um, follow on. But the four books that you've done, obviously, you know, in terms of actually where people can get more information and how they can learn more about this, you're so educated and just, but you really, you know, the way you explain stuff is just beautiful and it, oh, it just you. makes so much sense that, you know, I think you will help so many people to, uh, you know, improve their financial situations, which is is a beautiful thing. So Unfuck Your Finances is a global bestseller um, and your new book, which is, you know, budgets don't work. What are the differences? Like, why would I buy? I mean, you should buy them all, of course, but if someone <laughs> has a specific need, how can you give a quick synopsis on, on the different books and what you get out of them? So budgets don't work is that uh, overview. So it talks about things like doing a financial detox, why we need to break up with money, um, different types of debt, uh, sexually transmitted debt. So it's a really good uh, ground laying financially to really understand all the different concepts. This doesn't sound ground laying. To me, it sounds like a slap across the face. For me. <laughs> it's like every chapter. But like, a beautiful ooh. slap across the face. <laughs> yeah, and it to kind go, of looks beautiful I love as well. It. <laughs> yeah, but that, that whole, it's like, oh, every chapter you go, oh, okay, that's a bit awkward. <laughs> like, just, I've and never thought of it that way. It's super practical as well. It is, it really helps you, it takes you through the work. Budgets don't work, but this does. It is a very different book. So it looks at uh, money stories and it deep dives into money stories, money types and the habits. So it's very specific. So if you want that big, broad overview, unfuck your finances. And then if you want a deep dive, budgets don't work. So I would start with unfuck and then go to budgets don't work. <laughs> Did you have any issues about that title? Yeah, I know. <laughs> anyway, you've got to go unbeep. <laughs> oh, yeah, unf. Un- every time I'm on the hack, uh, they either, it depends on the presenter, they either go unf or yeah, that's funny. I love it. Good on you. Um, anything else you'd like to leave us with today? You've given so many great points and some things uh, for many of us to think about. And look, I'm going to get straight to work on some stuff. I love it. I think though, it's for me, it's about creating this awareness that we're not doing money wrong 
or that there is not the one way to do money. It's figuring out that, well, what's my psychology when it comes to money? And then also understanding that everyone's psychology of money is different. And then the paths that we can walk down to get to the financial future we want to, there's not one or two or three paths. There's thousands and thousands of paths. And it's figuring out, it's being interested enough to figure out which one's right for us and starting down one, knowing that at any time you can change. But we need to get interested about money. Well, the thing, actually, the one question I haven't asked, and it's probably where you're saying there about everyone's different, but if you are in a relationship with someone and, as you say, often you are both very different, you know, financial, like you have the different money types, do you have any advice of how to navigate that? Because I know my husband and I are super different and it's interesting as, um, you know, we've been together for 20 years, but as we're going through different life stages, I think that the differences are becoming even more prevalent. So um, I was going to say asking for a friend, but I'll just put that there, <laughs> asking for myself. <laughs> it's all right. My mates all know I bitch about <laughs> his frugalness often, so it's fine. But, um, you know, I feel I'm getting uh, probably a little bit more frivolous than I've ever got as I'm getting older. He's getting worse, like the more frugal. Yeah. And you may be reacting to one another. Maybe. So he's going, he's tiny and you're going, no, I'm actually going to go further. For me, it's coming to it curiously rather than judgmentally. Because money is the number one thing couples fight about. We cut, we fight about it at least twice a month. So often we don't deal with it because we just don't want the argument. And we just, it becomes a source of frustration and tension. So sitting down and figuring out what each other's money story is and whether that's serving or sabotaging us, understanding our money types, and then asking the question, how can we do money well together? What do you need to be safe? And what do I need to be safe? And then potentially going to be really different, but it's asking the question, if we really want this relationship to work, well, then part of that's the financial relationship. So what do we both need? And one shouldn't trump the other. It's what do we both need? And then how can we make that happen? Golly, that is just gold. <laughs> I feel like I've just had a counselling session with you. <laughs> do you know what? I do that. I'd have that so often. And this is often the aha where the, it'll often be the female go back and say to their partner, right, we're going to do this together. We're going to come at it with curiosity and we're going to realise we're not doing money badly. We're not doing money wrong but we're different. So let's figure out how we can do money well together. Love it, Mel. What a beautiful way to wrap this up. So thank you so much. It's been incredibly enlightening today and uh, learning about the psychology of money. And I think as you talk about in a lot of your posts and articles and things, we should be talking about money more. Money's not bad. It's not a bad thing. And the more we educate and share our stories, the better we're going to be at it, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll talk to you soon, Mel. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. If you'd like to learn more about today's guest, you'll find all the show notes and interesting links on our website, wabisabiseries.com. If you'd like to hear more unexpected conversations, please subscribe to the series, follow us on our socials, or grab one of my books. And if you're in a generous mood, I'd love you to share the episode or maybe even rate, review and comment on the series. It really does make a difference. Until next time, be sure to claim your own piece of Wabi Sabi and walk proud in your perfect imperfection.